What's up, guys? Welcome back to a brand new episode of the Blairless Podcast. I'm so excited to be here. We're back in the studio at HGAB Studios, and I'm here with my friend, Daniel Cohenpour, who is the founder of Trove Tourism. Hey, Blair. Hey, Dan. I don't even know what to call you, Daniel, Danny. I mean, you have so many. (laughs) So that's like the origin story right there. But Daniel is if like you're angry at me and my mother. (laughs) Danny is what everybody calls me now, because when I joined my consulting firm, we'll get into it. There were like 15 Dannys, and then they're like, okay, we're going to call you Danny and everybody else Dan. So I got the Danny, so I'm Danny from now on. You must have been the favorite at that I point. I was the favorite at that point, and uh, they were going to call me DC for a little bit, and I'm like- You're like, listen. Mm, that's weird. Like, <laughs> I'm good. So it's been Danny ever since, really. And my mom and dad had called me Danny since I started at con- in consulting, but then it just kind of took on in all facets of my life. So, so basically, you have three different names. Three different names. I go by Danny mostly and Daniel if you're my mother. So before we get into your career journey, I want to just talk about how we know each other, which we met on a program called Israel Links. Yes. Hashtag links. Yes. And that was like a 17-day post-birthright trip to Israel. You got the exact date. 17 days. I like that. Yeah. I just I don't know why I remember it's 17 days. It was 17 days. days. It was incredible. And um, we got to know each other and then another like 30 people from a lot of them were from Florida. So I got that part right. But they were from D.C., New York, a little bit from Israel. And it was probably like my favorite program I've ever done because you go to other programs and they're like seven days and you can't actually meet everybody that you're, that you're talking to or get to know them. Right. But 17 days, that's like a good amount of time to get to know people. I feel like I got to know you. And we were talking about your podcast while I was there. I remember us sitting on the bus talking about this idea and that you were doing this podcast. And, and so many years later, you're, you're killing it on your podcast. But I feel like we got to know each other well. I got to know some other people well as well. Um, and then I met up with some of the folks, I think one of them being you in Florida, a few years later. And it was just like no time went past. So that was an incredible trip. And a few relationships came out of that and friendships came out of that. And um, yeah, that's where I met you. It's great. <laughs> And it's funny because I feel like we've kept in touch all of these years and then you moved to New York and then you and my sister linked up. Shout out to Alexis. If you're listening to this, we miss you. Yes. And then you guys ended up becoming friends, which made me so happy. And I would get videos all the time of you guys doing cool stuff without me in the city. Exactly. So like, <laughs> I, I grew up in Long Island, right? And then um, I moved to DC right after school. So we'll go into that. But I was in DC great city not really for me so i moved back to new york and when i moved back i i started this this kind of grassroots organization in queens um jewish organization met a lot of jews that are in new york city queens manhattan wherever it is and one of them being your sister so i got to know your sister well um and yeah and now i know the whole casuto family which is pretty fantastic i feel like i'm just missing a few people but i'll get there soon. there's like yeah. quite a few left, give me a yeah. couple <laughs> give me a couple years I'll, I'll meet them on this podcast we like to start at the beginning where are you from and what did you want to be when you grew up it's a really good question um i'm from kew gardens queens originally okay my parents are diaspora from iran okay they in 1979 fled iran for the revolution and they left all of their money there. So they came here with no money. Nobody came here with any money whatsoever. So 
they all had to make their careers and really do what they wanted to do. So it, I feel like in other parts of Middle Eastern culture, it's always like lawyer, doctor, whatever. In my community, which is the Mashadi Jewish community of Long Island, you could very much do whatever you want because they came here and did whatever they want, right? To really scrap and make money. There wasn't this, hey, you want to be a doctor, you want to be a lawyer because you had to be anything, right? So I didn't, I didn't come in with like, come into this world with the constraint of I had to be something. So my dad, he has made his career in IT, right? And he was, he's done really good things in the insurance world and technology and, and he's really good with that. My mom, slowly, slowly, she became a really good real estate agent in addition to kind of being the mother of the household. I have always been really interested in how government works and how government can communicate better. I initially wanted to go into politics when I was very, very young. I was like seven years old. I wanted to be president of the United States. I wanted to really make a difference in politics. In high school, I was campaigning for all these different local campaigns and a statewide campaign. And um, I knew, I was like, you know what? The best way to get involved in government is to get into politics. That's, that's the only thing people know about, right? Is politics and you're running for office and you get to meet people on the streets and shake their hands. That's what I knew and that's what I I thought I wanted to do. And I, I thought I had the personality for it and all that, right? Which I may, I don't know. Maybe I'll, <laughs> maybe I'll go in that direction. But um, so that was really early on. And then I, um, I started to think about some other career paths within government. As, as you start to learn about it, you realize there are other things that are involved. You can get into policy, you can get into the operational side of government, you can get into international relations, right? And how do you look at international economics? That's all government as well. And you don't necessarily have to look into just politics. So when I went to school, I started actually at Carnegie Mellon University. And that was where I spent my first year and I was, when I was there, I came in with, hey, I want to do politics. And I want to join their political science program. I want to do politics. Slowly, slowly started to realize that my interests lied more in government and economics and, and things like that, right? So I transferred to Cornell. I um, moved to Cornell. Cornell is a really good program called the International Development Program, where you can really learn about how different countries around the world um, are are developing themselves either governmentally or economically or financially or whatever, socially, whatever it is. So I entered that program and I, I, that's when I really got interested in, we call international development or, or, or how governments develop themselves that are emerging, right? So you're not talking about America, you're talking about wh whether it be Grenada or, uh, or uh, South Africa where I've worked uh, whether it be Ethiopia, these are countries that are emerging, developing, high growth countries that are really looking to develop themselves. And that's really where I found interest because I thought, okay, America's interesting, but I feel like we kind of got a lot of our stuff figured out, right? Like mm -hmm. I was really interested in, in, in countries that are emerging, countries that are figuring themselves out on a what do they want to be perspective? How do they want to market themselves perspective? How do they want to operate and organize internally perspective? That was all really interesting to me. So I took a bunch of courses and I was really interested in like actually signing up for courses that I liked, which oftentimes made me stay back during the winter and like take courses that I didn't like because I wanted to focus on courses that I really enjoyed. And um, I ended up um, get becoming a part of this group called Social Business Consulting, which really, Cornell was weird because like did a lot of weird things. But <laughs> one of the weird things they did was they had students in addition to your coursework get involved in like jobs. 
So I got involved in as a consultant for an organization called Social Business Consulting, which is essentially a consulting firm made up of students and graduate students and some folks that are not even students anymore. And the goal is to work with um, social enterprises in emerging in emerging countries. So whether that be a a uh, nonprofit, whether that be a hotel in an emerging country, whether that be a charity, whatever it is, we offered our services, usually pro bono, some not, where we're going to be able to help them for uh, three, three, four months and then move to the next client. So that's what I did starting my sophomore year at Cornell. And um, I ended up leading all the consulting work that they did three years later and, and worked with probably 60 plus clients in like 30 countries. And, and that was amazing and not to brag, but it was the first time that I thought, okay, I have these like very niche skills. How do I actually apply them in real life? And it was amazing to me. I was like, okay, I'm actually learning things in the class. Like I was in an international development class or a development economics class. And I was actually applying that stuff to real life. That was something I've never done before. Because when you're in politics and you're learning politics, you can't go run for office the next day, right? Like it, it, there's, there's not really the applicability that I thought I really found in uh, international development, international business, that kind of stuff. So I, I did that. I loved it. And then kind of the rest was history. And then I left, um, I left Cornell and I ended up uh, working at a consulting firm for about six, six and a half years. Uh, and then started my company. But but that was kind of the first time that I thought, okay, I could really make a career out of helping organizations do their jobs better um, and applying some of the things that I've learned to that mission. So within that consulting job, you know, you're exposed to a lot of different cultures, societies, countries. They are all run different ways. What is something that you learned that kind of surprised you throughout that process? Um it, that's a really, really good question. I, the number one thing that I've learned, okay, and through that consulting job, I traveled to, I think, six countries and worked with organizations on the ground. What I learned is that every country everybody says is different, right? That's a cliche. Like the way people socially organize is different. The way people get together is different. The way languages are different. But at the end of the day, a lot of the business culture is the same, meaning in 99% of the countries, people value respect, number one, and you have to respect one another to get anywhere, right? If you don't have any respect or show respect, you're not going to get anywhere. I also think that people really value trust and they tr and, and how trustworthy you are and how trustworthy you come off. So there are things that I, I learned and, I, and it was interesting because every time I would go to another country, you'd, you'd say, okay, that reminds me of what I, what I dealt with in South Africa, right? So like, as you travel around, a lot of things are different, but in terms of a business culture, people organize the same, they're attracted to the same people, right? They do business with the same people. It's all the same. It's like, it's like a new page, similar words, right? It's all, it's all very similar. Um, and the same kind of cornerstones of what really makes a good relationship that, that really is similar across all the places that I've worked. And it's something that people really value. I love that. How did going to Cornell help expand your network? Um, another good question. You, you, you should do this uh, for a living, you know? You know, I really should. I, um, <laughs> uh, so it, it's, it, that's another good question. I um, Cornell was great because you go there and you're in the middle of literally nowhere. Okay, no offense to the mayor of Ithaca. There's not a lot going on in Ithaca, all right? There's a, a supermarket that everybody, it's like a nightclub. Everybody loves going there. That's like the number <laughs> one place to go. And, uh, and there's not much going on, but Cornell is a behemoth of an institution and you have 
people from like a hundred countries in the middle of nowhere, right? In the middle of a plain farmland in upstate New York, you have people from a hundred countries speaking hundreds of languages. Like it is crazy and learning about people from all over the world. So it needed to teach me about the world, right? Because I'm with all these people in a microcosm of the world in the middle of nowhere, right? So I met people from different languages. I learned different languages, right? Side note is I took Farsi, Persian for two years, right? I had always kind of understood it, but I never learned it. And that opened my mind up to like a lot of things about my culture that I didn't even know, right? Um, I, I met people that had done amazing things and had done charitable things and had done incredible things from back home that they wanted to bring here. And just like, you learn so many incredible things about different people and you also develop relationships with them, right? So I was in Singapore once for work and I met up with somebody that I was in Model UN with at Cornell in Singapore. And she gave me a two day long tour of Singapore, right? It's it just when you're in the middle of nowhere physically with people from everywhere, you're able to actually develop relationships that go the distance, right? So 100%. I think Cornell is a lot of the reason why I have a network today. And it was it was an incredible experience. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Talk to me a little bit about how you went from graduating and what your first job was and what that career path looked like. Sure. I um, My first job was at Accenture, which is a consulting firm. And I really spent the last three years at Cornell doing consulting, right? And I had no idea what it was. I initially, when I started, I'm like, okay, I don't know really what we're doing here. Is it financial? What are we advising them with, right? And what I really learned, and still my cousins ask me, hey, what do you do for a living? What is consulting? What is that? What do you do all day? <laughs> and what I tell them is the best part of it is it's almost like you're a business therapist, okay? A, 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 organization, it's always an organization. It could be government, business, whatever it is. They come to you and say, Hey, we have X problem or Hey, we, Hey, we have two or three problems or Hey, here's the situation. We don't know what the problems are. You tell us what the problems are, whatever case it is, there's always a problem. And then you dig deeper, you understand what the root causes are. And then you dig deeper and you dig deeper. I love that. Okay. Because I would have never been a good therapist because I'm a little bit too emotional for that. I'm going to leave that for my <laughs> sister who's becoming a therapist, but I, I, I really love decomposing a problem because I just think it's so interesting because often, you know, there's so many smart people that work in these organizations. It's not like they don't have the intelligence to come up with the solution, but they often need an external person to come in, right. And tell them, um, Hey, this is a new way of thinking about something, right? So that's what I learned for three years at Cornell. Um, and then when I was looking for, for jobs, I thought, okay, I love that component of consulting. Let me apply it to government and let me, and let me look at how we can help government do their job better. Cause government is really a direct thing that impacts people. You have businesses often one layer away from impacting an entire population. Government's often a, a, a layer direct to impacting a population. So I thought, okay, I'm really interested in impact. I'm so interested in, in, in consulting and breaking down problems. Let me apply that. So there are really handful of firms, I would say max 15 firms that specialize in government consulting, right? This is, this is helping an agency with their business problems. I applied to, um, half of them and then I got offers and then, um, Accenture was the one that really interested in me because they not only cared about the impact to communities. They also cared about the um, 
the helping government do their jobs better. And the last piece, which I thought was really interesting, is they were applying technology to government as well, right? And you think of government as a really um, a traditional kind of non-digital entity. They were applying really cool tech like external reality and, and virtual reality and um, new digital platforms that I thought were interesting to government and helping integrate them in a way that actually helped people. So that was like amazing to me. So I ended up getting the job and I started um, as an analyst and then developed, developed, developed. I I um, had no idea what to expect, to be honest. It, it was crazy. Accenture has 525,000 employees. That's like, that's larger than most po global populations. Right? <laughs> I it's, wish you could see my face right now. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's huge. And I asked my other friends, I'm like, how big is your office? They're like, oh, 300 people. I'm like, 525,000 like and it's not an office but it's a, you talk to, to a lot of people every day and it's a major network so that in and of itself is scary because you're coming in and it's you're like you're like okay where do I start you're How like do I, a small fish in a ginormous ginormous pond that I'm is like the a, ocean I was like a pebble in the middle of, and it's like it's so hard to differentiate yourself in something like that an environment like that it is so difficult to differentiate yourself and and because of that, you have to work 20% harder, right? And I know friends that work at startups and, and they love their jobs, love them, but they dial in at nine o'clock, dial out at five, and they are very successful people. I couldn't do that because if you dial in at nine and close at five, you're finishing your job, but you're not extending past and you're not doing things that are actually making a name for yourself within the organization because you got a network, right? If, if, if I think about... So at least one sixth of that 550,000 is based in India, right? If I'm not developing relationships there, I'm not developing relationships with a sixth of my company. That's kind of crazy, right? So I did a lot at Accenture to develop relationships. I was, I, I led the social impact community of practice and that was a thousand people. Okay. And that was an organization that essentially offered training to all the practitioners at Accenture that were interested in that. We did a lot of workshops. We did uh, consulting uh, challenges internally. Like, it was, it was amazing. And I only did that because I was able to put more and more time into it than I was initially allotted to. Right. You think of like what you're paid for doing and then what you actually should be doing to move forward your career. So it was a lot of that because if you are small P in a large pond, you got to make a big impact and hopefully become a whale one day in, in that pond. And that would be a little awkward to see a whale in a pond, but <laughs> ultimately it is. And um, so that that's kind of really what my focus was for the six years I was there. I feel like it's such, I'm glad that you're, you're speaking so honestly about being so uh, small in such a large organization. Cause I feel like that happens to a lot of people. And I know, especially the listeners of the podcast are always asking me like what they can do to improve themselves within an organization. And I think what you just said about, you know, leading a specific group, if that's a social impact group, or if that's, you know, some sort of extracurricular club, your company offers, you can't clock in nine to five. Impossible. If you, if you want to make a name for yourself, it's impossible. It's impossible. And you won't, and you'll also fall behind. And, um, I don't mean that on a career standpoint, I'm always somebody that like, I really love to learn, right? I'm there to work and provide value, but like ultimately I want to learn things. If I don't know something in Excel, which I often don't, and I still have people teach it to me, I need to learn it right away. If you're just clocking in and clocking out and, and checking your phone all day, you're not learning, which is what's the point of being there. You have this huge opportunity with all these people 
and you have a major opportunity to learn things that you don't know to apply it later on in your career, right? Like you can, this is free school, to be honest. Why not take advantage of that? So um, I'm 100% in agreement with you. I think that um, it. I, I treated corporate world like a business, obviously, where you're adding value, but also something that I want to take value from, right? And really learn things, whether it be technical skills, soft skills, how to communicate with people better, how to present better. I sucked at presenting when I started. I was all over the place. Even even when I was doing social business consulting, I was a okay presenter if I had slides in front of me, right? At, um, at Accenture, you really learn how to present because you're going to be put in front of government in my room. <laughs> They're like, you cannot mess this yep. up. <laughs> and when you put in front of government, you, any, they can ask you any question anytime. Okay. And they will, but like, they will cut you, cut you off if, if, if it's not right. And, um, it's a lot of that. And I, I still remember that my second year in, I did a presentation and I forgot which agency it was for. Uh, but we, it was a, essentially like a briefing. It was a, it was a, it was a, um, mid-year briefing and, and Accenture was helping them put the briefing on and everything that went wrong could have happened. Okay. So for example, I walk up and the mic was a little iffy, right? While I was walking up and I'm like, okay, I should probably deal with that with AV. And I just didn't. And I let it slide 15 minutes in the mic falls. Okay. The mic breaks. They hand me an actual mic. So that was like attached to my shirt. They hand me an actual mic 20 minutes later, that mic falls, that no, mic no, breaks. No, it doesn't. I think there are pictures. Okay. I was sweating profusely <laughs> the whole time. Cause I mean, I'm sorry. I was in a tie. I was in a suit. It was, there's there all these lights all on these you. Lights, government. <laughs> I had people sitting there the watching trigger me. Word, the trigger, trigger word. Word. And, and uh, I was just like, Oh my God. And then, uh, I, I spoke to my boss after my boss is usually so complimentary. She was like, you're a little nervous there. I'm like, that's putting it lightly. So, I mean, there are things like that that you learn from. And I don't think I've ever worn a tie to a presentation again after that. And if I have to, I figure it out. And that's a small point, but that's one thing I learned. Another thing I learned is Wait, be, why? Because of the because mic? Because it, it just makes you feel like you're not loosened up and relaxed. And, 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 and there, we, there's a fun fact. Government or not, I literally have not worn a tie to a presentation ever again. To, to meetings, a like casual, I will. But if I'm presenting, it just makes me too nervous. And I'm just like, I feel like I'm taking you're the tie suffocating. off. Suffocating. <laughs> take the tie off. I'm, I'm Danny. Take the tie on. I'm Daniel. Right? Yeah. Like, I'm not doing it. So... <laughs> There was that. There was, hey, if you haven't practiced, practice, practice before the presentation as much as possible, you're going to feel nervous. If you practice, you won't feel nervous. Promise you. I could have a presentation in front of um, the the head of an agency. If I've really practiced and I know what I'm saying and my team knows what, I'm, what they're saying, there's no reason to be nervous because you've done everything you can to be confident, right? So there's just things that I've learned, but that was only because I put the time into it and I actually spent time learning through the process, so. There's a quote like that that says preparation and luck equals opportunity or something like yes, that. Yes, exactly. If if you if you don't if you don't prepare, you should be nervous because because <laughs> you won't do well, right? And I, there's been a lot of times where I've had meetings or workshops that my team is preparing for that I've pushed because we're not prepared, and I'd rather do that than not be prepared. So that's really uh, where I lie. But it's all it's all things that I've learned through the process and things that I'm applying today. So. Let's jump into Trove. Sure. 
Tell the people what it is, why you started it, what was the inspiration behind it? Sure. So Trove is a tourism development consulting company. It's Trove Tourism Development Advisors, the long form. My dad actually WhatsApp me uh, uh, two days ago, and I may be giving a, away a, a future slogan, but he said, Danny, have you ever noticed that Trove Tourism Development Advisors, the acronym is TTDA, which is TADA? And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to, I'm going to, that's money. <laughs> I love that. And I, I actually hadn't thought of that, but, but what we really try to do is help destinations stand out, right? So having that ta-da moment, I'm using my dad. Sorry, dad, I'll pay you later. But it's, <laughs> um, it's, we, we like to d discover what we call treasure troves or gems that each destination has and help them do two things, either market them better, right? Or develop new gems that they haven't really thought of, right? So I started this, um, company because I found a really specific niche for it that I was able to scale. And I'll tell you the exact story. Okay. I was in uh, a Caribbean country. I'm not going to name them because we may actually be doing uh, some sort of engagement with top them. Secret, so, top, secret. top secret. So I was in a Caribbean country and, um, I, um, was really coming in with low expectations. I really had no idea what to expect in this country. I was there to visit my friend who was in med school there. I had no expectations. And and as a traveler, and, and by that point, I've been to 40 countries, either through work or not. And I, if I'm not excited about a place, I'm not really excited about it, to be honest. So I went because I wanted to visit my friend. Three days in, um, we go to the beach and then there's a guy snorkeling guy there and he's like hey do you guys want to come snorkeling i'm like yes let's do it so we go snorkeling 45 minutes in i'm underwater i see some of the most beautiful statues i've ever seen in my life it, these are statues that rival some of the ones that i've seen in europe okay but they're on the bed of the ocean okay and i'm sitting here like how did i not know this was here right and and how did this how was this not marketed to me how was this not prevalent online and i go to the boat captain i'm like sir where did this come from? Like, how did I not know about this? How did I not know about this to the point where the only things that I was looking forward to was a rum refinery and and like a a, a beach walk? Like, and he was saying that the um the marketing for the destination could be a little bit tighter and and they could definitely there's room for improvement, right? Because I'm from America, there are travelers that are far away from where we went, and um the the overall marketing the destination and what they had to offer could be better. So that was a really interesting idea for me, right? Because the problem was marketing to people. And um, I, I felt like I had just a lot of knowledge on what a solution could be, right? So I ended up putting a lot of time into developing the concept, interviewing 15, 20 people that I knew of that worked at uh, ministries of tourism and tourism boards around the world. And I just, it just some of the network that I've created, I was able to interview folks, did interviews, did surveys, all of that. And it, aggregated a lot of data on what we should be offering. And then I ended up starting an agency and uh, with five main components. We do strategic planning where we help a, a destination with their, um, what we call a tourism master plan, which is how do you develop a concept from start to finish? And how do you also plan out uh, the next year to five years? Um, a branding strategy, which I know you're, you're supporting um, as an advisor. Online marketing and social media, which is very much how do you develop a, a hard-hitting campaign using data. Um, the fourth is visitor experience design, which is how do you streamline your visitor experience when a visitor comes to a destination to when they end. How do you use digital tools to do that as well? 
And the fifth is insights and analytics, which is how do you aggregate data, whether it be trend data on who's coming in and out, whether it be sentiment data, whether wh- whether it be social and, and web data, what data are you looking for? How do you consolidate it and use it for your growth? So um, started that and then, um, and I really spent some time aggregating a, a strong group of advisors, of consultants, um, and then uh, going to market. So uh, that's really, it came from a few different things. It came from my love for solving problems. It came from my love of travel and the world and and seeing different places and, and having concepts of what works and doesn't work. Um, and it also came from my real, and which we haven't talked about yet, but my real excitement about doing something of my own, right? And, and going from the corporate world where I was a pea in a pod and, and I was slowly becoming the whale to becoming my own person, right? And, bec- and doing my own thing and, and trying something out and seeing if it sticks. So um, that's why I started Trove and, and I'm really, really, really excited about it and I love to work on it every day. So I'm really excited for you because in the short time that, you know, you've told me about it and the people that I've met that are on the advisory board, everyone is so smart and talented in their own ways. And they all kind of bring something different to the table that I think makes your company super well-rounded Yep. that, you know, you're hitting it from all different ends, but it's also like a bunch of creative minds coming together that have different ways of doing things and thinking about things, but all coming together for one solution. Exactly. So I think that it's amazing and seeing it live in action was really inspiring to me because I think that, there are so many people in the world that are talented within these spheres. And it's just so exciting to me when they all come together and really brainstorm and share ideas and kind of like sparks that inspiration for you to learn more, do more, try more. So yeah. uh, I thank you. I, mm-hmm. uh, that came out of uh, one piece of feedback that I got and it was when I was interviewing and meeting with a, a, a tourism board or ministry that um, that y- you would expect to have everything together, right? They know what they're doing. They know, but they came to me and, and were like, "Hey, when we get pitched by agencies, they usually come to us and say, hey, we can help you with your search engine optimization.' But as a organization, I don't need help with that, right? They, they their response was, "Hey, that's not what we need right now. We want to talk you through what we need, right?" Oftentimes when you are, especially in this industry, tourism, which we can talk about, but um, a lot of what I have seen is an agency will come to an organization and say, hey, we want to help you on a specific thing. I said, okay, post-COVID, right, everybody needs help with everything. And um, destinations and tourism organizations or whatever it is, they really have, have been hurt by this pandemic, whether it be on a revenue standpoint, on a visitor standpoint, on a visitor growth standpoint, where 2018, 2019 were some of the highest years for tourism growth ever, okay? And then you hit 2020 and everything's stuck. So they don't want an agency to come to them and say, hey, we know you need help with X. They want an agency to come to them and really understand what their needs are and help solve for them, right? So I really built Trove with the understanding that we have to address everything, right? And and initially we have to be able to address two major sides. The first side is how to bring a visitor in and target them better. So marketing. And then the flip side is that you're planning and strategy once you have the visitor there. So that's really how I approached every engagement and how I've gone and said, okay, let's understand what your root causes are. Similar to what it did eight, nine, 10 years back, right? What are your root causes and how do we actually solve for them? So I think also when 
I mean, I've worked on the agency side and the brand side, and I know that it can be a little bit tricky when agencies are starting to pitch, right? And everyone has their own preferred way of doing it. However, I will say that I agree with the person that told you that because if I'm a brand and I'm looking to hire an agency Mm -hmm. and they come to me and say, oh, this is what you need. It makes me automatically guarded being like, how do you know what we need? I didn't even tell you yet. And I think that a better approach for anyone listening to this who may do some consulting on their own is to really come in and say, we have these five areas of expertise We'd love to help you with all of them. You tell me what you need. Yep. Once they start talking to you and saying like, oh, you know, we really need one of these. And then the more you start talking to them, they're like, actually, we need all three of these things. Yep. And so before even saying, oh, you need this one thing, you're pigeonholing yourself instead of saying we offer all of these things. And then it starts getting them thinking and they're like, you know what? I actually like you. I like the way you presented this. And I think that especially in corporate settings, if you're trying to get yourself involved in a setting like that and you haven't really been there before personality and the energy that you bring to the table is so important. I have seen huge corporations hire extremely small agencies with like a five person team because they were like, I like you. And I think that you have what it takes to make this come to life. So don't downplay that. You know, I think that if you're an entrepreneur and you're listening how you present yourself and the way that you come off to people is so important. And almost, almost always it beats the pure credentials of saying, Oh, I've done X, Y, Z. If you come in and, and you have that sort of like welcoming aura that they want to work with, yep, they'll be more likely to go with you. I've seen it happen with billion dollar companies. I've seen them hire I, very I think small. That's spot on. And you're coming from you. That's worked in all these settings. That's, that's a, that's a crucial point, right? I think, and this is going to be a really macro point, and then I'll get micro, the agency and consulting world, the way that they interview people to bring in, right? And I'm talking 10 years ago, entering corporate, right? The way that they interview people coming in, it's very much, hey, I need you to answer right away and, f- and, and figure out this case, right? These cases, right? You have 60 seconds. Like, answer me. like <laughs> Literally 60, 60 seconds. seconds. And tell me how many how many refrigerators there are in South Africa. Like, And I'm like, <laughs> what? Like... And, and they really put you on the spot with these really quick turnaround case competition type questions where you're competing with yourself, right? But you're in a room or a video chat with one person and they're really testing you on your ability to think on your feet, which is great, right? But that's really how they hire, right? They hire through cases and you have a behavioral, but the case is really what makes it. And if you fail the case, you don't get the job. Now, I think there needs to be a little bit of a rewiring, right? Because to your point, it's so critical for you to be able to show personality and your social skills and your ability to relate. I think that's an issue and that's something that people are trained on in the corporate world when in reality, it's a lot more of building relationships and how do you build those relationships and who do you contact and how do you really get to know them? And that's all so crucial and that's not taught when you're an entry-level analyst and you're trying to to learn and, and, and understand how many refrigerators are in South Africa. And that was one of the cases that I got actually, but, but, mm-hmm. uh, or understand the market size of X or how to understand which option to, to pitch this bioengineering company when you have 45 seconds of information, that's good to show how you think on your feet, but is it really training the next generation of consultants and agency people? Probably not. Right. So, um, it's something that I really think is important being personable, understanding what those problems are and helping bring them out is critical. So 
What is the one lesson that you have learned from being an entrepreneur, if you had to choose one? Yeah. The one lesson that I've learned is find really what your skill is and milk that skill till no tomorrow. And what I mean by that is you could be a, a king of everything, right? I could be a king of social media. I could be a king of accounting. I could be a king of financials, presenting. But ultimately, if you're doing all that stuff, you're, you're a king of none of them, okay? You find what your real skill is and harness that and really focus on that and bring in other people that have expertise in the other areas that you really want to augment your team, right? For example, my skill is knowing how to bring people together, okay? I'm a really, really, really good team manager, team organizer, bringing folks that have disparate expertise together and developing a strong project. That's really what I do well. I'm not as skilled of an accountant, okay? I'm not as skilled as a graphic designer. And the graphic designer that I work with will tell you, and she's probably screaming through the phone right now that I'm not, right? <laughs> but I know how to find those people and I know how to bring them together. So I understood my skill, which is organizing teams and really bringing value. And I've been able to surround myself with other people. So as an entrepreneur, the most important step is not trying to do everything and really doing one thing really well and identifying folks to augment your team and work with that are strong, strong, strong in a specific thing that you need help on. So that is a perfect answer. I don't think I could have. That's because I, I live it every single day. You're and like, I repeat this in the mirror to myself. I every repeat day. it in the mirror every day because <laughs> find your skill, find your skill because you, if, if you try to do everything, you get really overwhelmed, right? If I and try burnt to do out. and burnt out, if I try to do everything, I get overwhelmed and think, oh my God, there are 500,000 person firms out there that are competing with me, right? How am I ever going to stick out? And, but why don't you just focus on doing a specific thing really, really well and, and performing your mission really well and getting overwhelmed by things is a direct result of trying to do too much. So that's something that I really value and preach it preach and and um it's 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 really the um the number one thing that i i remind myself of every day i try to, to pump myself up in the mirror to remind myself of that but but it, it's true and i tell it to people all the time and associates and consultants that i work with is is um hey i brought you in to learn but i also brought you in because you are an expert in a field i told somebody that joined our team a couple of weeks ago and she's associate level and i said hey I brought you in for your expertise in social media content development. And she said, expertise? And I'm like, yeah, you are incredible at it. Like you are an incredible content creator. Your graphic design skills, you don't even need Canva, right? You're just so good at it. You're an expert in it. And I really want to work with you on that expertise and help bring value to Trove. And just her hearing her, her hearing that was surprising coming from CEO, right? Of somebody that thinks they could do everything. But really harnessing an expertise and also showing other people that you value their expertise that they're bringing is, is really cool. Cause you, cause there could be even a small nugget there, but it, it, if it adds, if it adds value to your venture, then fantastic. Can we talk about that for a second? Mm -hmm. Really investing in your team yep. is so important. And I don't mean monetarily, although that is also important, but helping them to see what their skills are as well. Yep. Cause especially with creatives, we get super in our head about everything, especially if you're hard on yourself, you're always thinking that what you're doing is never enough. Yep. So even just a small confirmation from your boss or your peers saying, Hey, great job. Or you're an expert at that. You probably just changed her whole life. Yep. She probably woke up the next day and was like, I'm at the next level. You know what yep. I mean? Yep. And I think that she's going to work 10 times harder now because she sees that her peers are valuing her work. And then all of a sudden that's going to make her value herself more. 
So I, I just want to stress that. And, you know, no matter what industry you work in, no matter what you do, it's important to build up the people around you and really help others recognize their own worth. And then also in turn, that's going to make you feel way more fulfilled because you're going to be in a better working environment. You're going to feel valued where you are. And you're also going to feel like you are growing. And that's the most important thing. Cause what you said at the beginning of the episode was that if, if you're not learning, what are you doing? What's the point of even being there? Yep. You spend a majority of your time at work. Yep. Even if it's eight hours a day and you work nine to five, you're only awake for a few more hours after yeah, that. And then you got go to go to watch American <laughs> Idol and go, I don't do that, but going to sleep, I may do that. But, um, every night it, it's, reruns. it's, it is it's what Ryan Seacrest is. Right. Oh, hundred percent. Ryan Seacrest, little Katy Perry action. You're done. <laughs> but, um, so it, I only do that because, and I'm, I'm not going to shortchange this, but my number one, uh, influence, especially when I was in corporate was uh, my boss. I won't say her name, but she knows who she is. And she taught me that, right? She taught me two things that I bring forward every single day. And, and I, I'm not, I didn't come up with them from thin air, right? She really taught me things. And it was, it was because of her nurturing, right? That I was able to even take the next step. And she taught me one thing. She said, everybody that you work with, and she's taught me this for years now, the first question they want to hear is not an update on the deliverable. It's, are you happy? And how are you doing? She always asked me, are you happy? And it sounds like a weird question, right? But the way she, you're like, am I, am happy? I happy? <laughs> the way that she asked it was just so personable. And I took that for every single person that I led through consulting. And I ended up leading very large teams when I was at Accenture um, to Trove, right? And me just really relating to people on a personal level and asking them, hey, are you happy? Or, or following up on something that they knew happened to them in the last week that may have not been good, right? But always following up first on a personal standpoint and asking, are you happy? How are you doing? That was no the number one thing that I think she taught me. Number two was what you just said, investing in people, right? And being able to nurture their expertise and show them, hey, you're doing this really, really well. And being able to just demonstrate that every day and reiterate that every day. And even when they do things badly, right? When they do things badly, you address what they did bad, but also highlight, hey, you did this really well. And that is really important. And that's how you build a well-rounded team, right? Because you don't want a bunch of people that are doing, hey, things really badly or do even doing things really well, but not growing and figuring out different things. So if you're giving feedback constantly and you're nurturing, that's really important. And that's something that I remind myself every day. I feel like I have learned so much in this episode already, and I really hope that all of the Blairless listeners feel inspired and ready to ask their team if they're happy. <laughs> Are you happy? Three words. Are you happy? Three words, and uh, and they really make a difference because uh, yeah, that's my next question. Are you happy? I am thrilled. Okay, and and I and I say that because I finally feel like I've reached a balance in my life on personal and professional. And I think a lot of that has to do, and I've been working on Trove obviously for a while and, and the team that I've, 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 um, aggregated here are, are just some phenomenal people that I've known for a while, like yourself and, and, and some of the consultants and associates that I work with. Um, I, I really feel like I've reached a balance because I'm doing a hundred percent of what I love to do every single day. Right. I don't look forward to, paid time off anymore, which is something that I, I've never even been able to verbalize, right? Who are you? It, it Paid time off is not even a thing for me, right? I just spent the last uh, two weeks traveling and working and meetings and and um, I love it. And I'm working a lot, 
but I, I really enjoy what I'm doing. I love the organizations and the client mission that I'm working towards and the organizations that I've been meeting with and being able to add value and break down their problems and working with my team. It's super, super fulfilling. And I'm really proud of, 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 I said it a couple, a couple uh, months ago to my mom, I'm like, I feel proud of myself today. And she's like, yeah, I mean, you should be <laughs> right. And, and, uh, and, um, it's been a really, really great journey and I'm looking forward to the next chapter. And I really, really just, I'm happy and I love what I'm doing. And, uh, and, um, it, it just puts a lot of things into perspective when you're happy doing what you love, right? Everything else you, kind of falls into place. So. Okay. So I have two rapid fire questions for you before oh we, oh, before we end this lovely episode. What is your favorite place that you've been and where do you hope to go? Just with, you know, quick answers. Okay. So first place I thought of was the Philippines. Okay. And I was there for three weeks and, um, it was the most joyful place on earth. And you know, I help destinations every day, try to find their gems, right. And their treasure troves. And that's something I love to do in Philippines. It was the people, it was the laughter. And when they would make fun of you, they would laugh and you would laugh and you'd be like, why am I laughing? Right. But it was, it was the most joyful people on earth. They have a jolly bee as their mascot. They're joyful. Their gem is their people. And I tell people every day, go there because the people are the nicest people. It's the most beautiful country ever, but go there because the people are so, so nice. Your second question. Where do you want to go? So that is a, that is a really, um, it's a different question. And, um, there's, there's a few places that I want to go. I want to explore this entire continent, but I want to explore Africa more. I I've been to South Africa and I spent three months working there, uh, even pre, um, Accenture. Um, but I, I, I would love to do a safari. Okay. But I, I, I also, there, there are places in Africa like Ethiopia that I've always wanted to go on that I've worked virtually before, but I've never been there that I just think, um, selfishly, the culture kind of reminds me of my culture growing up, the Persian culture, really family oriented. People are really genuine, nice. The business kind of culture is, is really great. So I would say my next stage of where I want to travel even personally is probably, I would like to go to Ethiopia, Ghana, really explore a lot of what the continent of Africa, this vast continent has to offer, because it's somewhere that I, I haven't, you know, I've been to six continents, including Africa, but, um, that's somewhere that I definitely want to go even before my seventh Antarctica. I'd love to explore Africa a little bit more. What is a mantra that you live by? Um, a mantra that I live by is that kind of jumping off my point from before, everybody has stuff going on in their lives and everybody has bad things. I was about to say a bad word here, but everybody has bad things going on in their lives and personal lives that, that you don't know about. Right. And, and I may not know what's going on in your life. You may not know what's going on in my life behind closed doors. You don't know what you don't know. Now you have what eight to 10 hours with people every day working with them. Right. So the number one thing you can do is really just be nice and be a joyful person to be around so that they can maybe even forget what they have going on at home. And, um, and it is so important because oftentimes you forget that people are working with you more than they see their own family, right? So if you can make everybody's day happier and joyful, make them laugh, make them smile, that's so critical. And it, it, it's it's in your work, it's in your personal life, is always just be nice. It takes a lot of effort to be mean and angry 
and take out your frustrations on other people that don't deserve it, right? So always, always put the nice card first, put the nice front first, and 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 everything falls from that, right? And everything is able to come from that. And you're able to build a better team of friends, right? Instead of having to just call them colleagues. And and um, that's something that I um I tell myself every day, something that was taught me right? Going through corporate, something that was taught for me for, from a young age, from my family, even growing up in Queens. And, uh, and it's something that I remind myself every day is always just be nice, regardless of anything you have going on in your personal life, anything, any little inconveniences, don't bring that forward and always just remind people that they should just be happy and nice and kind to one another. And building a team like that is, is, is um, really important. Where can people find you on social media? Okay. Uh, I have two answers to this. First is uh, my individual handle, so at D Cohenpour. Uh, but really, more importantly, uh, is Trove, right? So at Trove Tourism is our Instagram handle, and you can find us um, at Trove Tourism everywhere else. Facebook, LinkedIn, um, uh, Twitter, really anywhere you want to find us. And uh, we're posting some good content. I have my associates now working on some content. Uh, and um, all things from blogs about travel and tourism to updates from me about travel and tourism and where I sit there and I'm like, oh, oh I love your TikTok. Tourism and travel trends, like a, like a freaking- A daily update. Yeah, you're going to be TikTok famous in no time. Yeah, I'm excited about that. We have great blogs that come up. We are, whenever we travel, we do reports from where we travel from. We do highlights from team members. So um, uh, social media, uh, either uh, Twitter, or our Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn is where you can find us. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. This is great. Now I know where all the magic happens in Miami. You always think like, oh, Blair's in Miami. What is she doing? Now I'm getting a picture. <laughs> I like it. I know. I feel like I need to give more behind the scenes of oh, what goes on. Oh, you have to. Because, you know, Miami has this like cloud of like, you never really know what people do there. Same thing with LA. Like, you can't really tell. People need to see the behind the scenes. This is great. They really do. They really do. Thank you guys so much for listening and stay tuned for a brand new episode dropping next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Bye.